Welcome to Constructing Mindsets, discussing the building blocks of our mental health. Today, we're discussing what happens when work just becomes too much. When the overwork we've all experienced in this industry goes from manageable to impossible, and some positive steps we can all take to overcome this, an all too common occurrence. And to discuss this important topic, we have John Casey with us. John has published a very honest and open article on LinkedIn, which we encourage our listeners to go and read about his journey with stress and overwork. Thank you so much for joining, John. Please can you explain your story of kind of how you came about publishing the article? I can. Um, I essentially had my mental health illness. um, And while I was off, I was just hugely compelled to put that into words and share the experience really honestly with people. Um, I got feedback when I was first ill about what it was all about. I couldn't find anything or not seen anything that really set out what the symptoms of mental health illness was actually all about. So I was originally started out just to document that, but then I just got, it went further and further and putting the positive spin on it as it does in my article. What specifically does the article focus on? Does it touch upon mental health in general, different elements of mental health that you sort of discovered and tried to address? Yeah, so it it covers a lot. Um, It puts a positive spin on it to start with because I thought it was important to be optimistic about it, but it's also brutally honest and open about what the actual experience was like to, to try and take the sting out of that experience for people so when they do it experience it themselves they feel they don't feel quite so alone uh, and then it was going on to looking at how we can start to address that in various different ways and so techniques on how to cope in the first instance but then also just recommendations for sort of longer term solutions to the whole situation okay so th- and the trigger in this case because i mean i've read your article i just want to give some context to the readers the trigger in this case was sort of on your part, overworking, long hours, you know, stress-induced. How did that start to build up and accumulate? Did it, you know, I guess you don't just start overworking from day one. You might feel the need to say yes continuously. You might have um, pressure from above. Was there anything particularly that started you in that overworking cycle? Uh, Yeah, I I think it's just a, a history of being very committed to things. So I think... There's a certain part of just a personal drive to always do my best and be, a, I suppose, perfectionism is a certain kind of uh, element of that. Um, I think it's a certain amount of kind of upbringing where there was an encouragement to always work hard and possibly just got a bit too carried away with that. Um, but then once, so I think there was a certain amount of long-term background that set me up to go in that direction. But it also was once I got into work and especially with consultancy here there was a lot of pressure to deliver but not a lot of uh, support to actually manage um, manage that and so in the early days this is like 20 years ago nearly um, we were doing a project in Wales and I did a huge amount of driving to Wales and back so I lived in Birmingham I'd drive to central Wales I'd do a day's work and then I'd drive home again uh, and it was just exhausting and that wasn't managed well at all the world of sustainability has always had a lot of pressure about it. It's just always been about pushing a very large rock up a steep hill and no support 
within projects. So people didn't care about sustainability and carbon enough. So it's within infrastructure, sustainability has actually been a pretty brutal discipline to be working in because of the lack of support and always having to go the extra mile just to get fairly straightforward things done. Yeah, I can imagine because sustainability is something that you've really got to sell um, to clients. I mean, it's come to the forefront nowadays, but I can imagine when you first started off, it was, as you say, like pushing a rock up the hill because not everyone believed that we need to do something about it now. So that's yeah. that extra over you've got to go to to demonstrate the benefits of what you're doing and, and why it should be done. Yeah, very much. We've gone from what I just described and what you were outlining there to now it being suddenly in demand and we haven't got enough resource. And I think that is ultimately where the, the final situation came because there was just so much to do because... There was so many people wanted so much of a response that it just became a brutal level of workload. Yeah. And so how long did this go on for before you started getting some symptoms and you started realising that something was wrong? Yeah, I suppose I've always I've always overworked for the sort of the reasons that I described. And so I think there has always been a, a certain level of... Um, weariness and sensation of overwork um i then taught myself how to overwork so even when my brain was telling me to stop and i was really tired i did actually find a mechanism where i could just focus hard enough to get through that and just keep going and so i've been doing that for years to be honest but then just this end of last year it just started getting to the point where there was no respite from it and i think a combination of ongoing effort and age uh, just led, got to the point where I physically and mentally wasn't able to keep up anymore. Yeah, I guess you got to the point of burnout whereby all your yes. adrenaline reserved yeah. had been used and yeah. you can't keep pushing on through every single time that you do get overworked. You've got to give like, a rest to yourself physically and mentally, as you say. Louise, is this something that you see quite a lot as mental health first aid, overworking and the pressure put on us by our deadlines, our managers, and also I think the pressure we put on ourselves. I think, John, you made a really good point about you know being a perfectionist, being very committed. A lot of us in this industry are really passionate about what we do. So inherently, we always want to give our best and that can result in overworking. Yeah, so it's probably one of the more common things we see as mental health first aiders. I think it's one that people can relate to a lot more without needing to pinpoint it as a specific thing that's causing it because stress can be an accumulation of a lot of different things. Um, People are also less taboo and less stigma around the word stress. We use the word quite regularly, stressed about stressed about that, or someone's giving me a headache. We use the terms quite a lot in day-to-day life where maybe we don't recognise stress as such a big problem that it is. Um, And especially as kind of like overwork as part of it we're in an industry that's very either fast-paced or deadline driven Um, whether we're on site whether we're in offices it's quite a common thing and stress purely means a high pressure situation so that doesn't have to be a work it could just be a deadline a manageable piece of work that maybe we've left too late Um, so I think we can all relate to being in that situation but it's when that situation extends a lot further that then we see the more serious implications like John's been mentioning. Um, it can come through as a physical illness to start with. People may not realise it, but stress can cause aches, pains, headaches, sickness. Um, and it all comes back to that mental phenomena. So 
it's such a common thing and it affects everyone in such a different way that I guess we see it quite often because it can come from home life or work life and it can manifest in any given time. It doesn't have to be something that's ongoing. It can be just a week of serious high pressure causes someone just a bit too much and they need that support. Yeah. And John, when you reach that burnout and you were just like, I just can't take this anymore, I can't do it. What did you do at that point? Did you did you admit to yourself that you need to take a break or did you still try and push on through? What happened? Yeah, I suppose, I mean, the, the, the breaking point that I described in my article at, um, at the start of November, then that was being in bed and kind of I went to the doctor and that was that. But prior to that, there'd been there were plenty of symptoms there and I was, yeah, I was just pushing on through. So especially the, um, the physical symptoms of uh, out-of-body experience and kind of losing physical coordination. So that was just a physical symptom that wasn't, it, was, it wasn't directly affecting me thinking and doing my job, but it was a, an extra mental load because I was aware that that situation was there and that was not a healthy thing. Um, but yes, there was plenty of there was plenty of very significant symptoms there, and I just kept going because I could still get up and I could still feed myself and I could still cycle to work and I could still sit at a desk and um, press a keyboard. So I should have stopped a lot sooner than I did, but that was a learning curve in itself. Yeah, I guess that was really tough because you're not really present. Because I think what we don't yeah. appreciate is that going through those out-of-body experiences, Lucy Howard spoke um, in a previous podcast of ours about how she kind of didn't manage to cross the road because she just couldn't even yeah. see the cars crossing. And I, you know, I can't relate to that. I've never been through it. But I can imagine it's pretty scary to be experiencing that and not knowing what to do about it because there's not a way to address that immediately. You're going through something you've never experienced before and you probably feel very helpless yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I found the the physical elements particularly bothersome. Really, that was that was something physical that was either there or it wasn't, um, and it almost just felt like I was getting old quickly. Uh, whereas the the mental elements were the ones that I couldn't understand and I couldn't control the most. Yeah. Um, and so, so I, I, yeah, it was bad, but I didn't have too much of a problem personally with the physical elements. Okay. And Hannah, what you spoke about previously, there's a lot of direct links here. Can you resonate with this at all in how this burnout suddenly happened and the realisation that, you know, things needed to change? Um, yeah, there's a lot about what John said that I can relate to. And it's definitely, um, like I said, you're trying really hard to just to do as well as you can and, and you push through it because you can keep going. Um, I'm definitely like that's definitely happened to me I mean we discussed it in the uh, last podcast episode where I almost kind of kept going and then the breakdown happened so much later on and it was so much worse because I did mm. but I also feel like um like one of the things you said earlier everyone in this industry is just trying to do their best and I think what's really important is that we maybe need to redefine what the, your best is I mean currently it's reaching a, a deadline but it doesn't necessarily need to be that's it's about doing it well and if that means taking time out to look after yourself I think that's potentially like a really big game changer if we try and like redefine how people say best because for people like us that are trying to be perfectionists and you're aiming for that goal if that goal is the deadline then that's going to be the thing you're striving for and you will give your whole body to to do it and 
Yeah, I, I think I can reflect on that very strongly, Hannah, because I do my best was always doing everything that needed to be done to get a deliverable done to a good level and by the deadline and all this sort of stuff. And I didn't account for the fact that I was only employed to do a 40-hour week. And if Atkins had a client that was pushing us to go beyond contract scope, they would very, very quickly get onto that client and say, no, that's, that's beyond kind of uh, the contract arrangements. Whereas we have a contract with clients to do a 40-hour week and lots of people regularly do over that. And so I think one of the realisations for me is, well, firstly, Atkins are being very supportive in focusing on a 40-hour week. I can't say I've been successful this week nor will I be next week but that's the way things are just at the moment but Atkins are supportive of me now doing a 40 hour week and I've definitely recalibrated my thinking when I get to the end of an 8 hour day even if I've got capability um, or sort of mental capability to keep going and things do need a bit more attention I'm more than happy to now say I've done my best for today that was what was required of me and uh, calling uh, finishing my working day on that basis It's a really good point both of you talk about doing our best, what is our best, is it getting that deliverable done on time, is it the quality, if it's both, how do we manage that? And I think also when in our industry you're working on a few different projects at once and you have multiple things to be doing for different clients, how do you make sure that you're balancing that in the right way, that you're delivering the best value out of yourself, you're giving the most to the client, and you're not burning out in the process because it's very difficult to find that balance and it's all about really making sure that you're resourced correctly on those projects as well. So someone's sort of looking out for you from above um, to make sure that you don't become in that position where you're trying to commit too much to too many people. Yeah, uh, I'm very much in that situation at the moment. (laughs) So, and... um, I'm, yeah, we've just we've got some very big projects starting up all at the same time. I'm a kind of senior technical leader, so it makes it very challenging around that. But I am just being a lot. So some things I just let slide. People ask for it, and they ask for it my time. And I am quite happy for those things not to happen if I haven't got the capacity to do it, and that is not my problem anymore. Um, and it's, it should be nobody's problem. It's the business to deal with that. And okay, the business is people, and, and that is. The senior, very kind of the senior management, have to deal with that themselves. Um, but it is all about resourcing, and it's not down to one individual to solve a whole company's resourcing problem when we are just resource ourselves. Okay, there are different types of deadlines, but it's being a lot more lenient with yourself rather than falling into the pressure to actually do everything that's required. Because there just needs to be a lot more realism in all of these deadlines that are set because they're causing all these problems. Yeah, and also it's a case of actually having or being empowered to say no. We can always say, I'll just say no to something, but you've got to be in a position where you feel empowered to say no and you can justify pushing back because if you're not in that situation where you can feel like you do that, you let it build up. To to set that tone, maybe at a leadership level in a business, that it's okay to say no, it's okay to push back because we want you to be doing your best on the other things you're doing, that should be a positive message that goes out within the business that also helps individuals manage their time. Yeah, and that is something that's definitely happening because um, so my line management have set me up and said to say only work a 40-hour week and yeah, that ebbs and flows a bit but generally in the last few weeks I've been meeting that but then in the last couple of days it's got ridiculously pressured and opportunities have come in and we're 
kind of like three or four opportunities have come up where I've been asked to respond to it. Yeah. I've said no. And then I got a random less message off my line manager saying to me that he's supporting me rejecting these bids that need my input. And basically, he's obviously, someone's gone to him and they've said, why is John not supporting us on this? And rather than putting the, him putting the pressure on me, he has actually been supporting and said, look, he's too busy, he can't do it. Yeah, that's it's great when your manager looks out for you like that, and that's what yes. it should be yeah. a key part of yeah. of line manager training to look out for your resources in that way, hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'd I'd also just like to touch upon your comments within the article. So, um, myself, Louise, also Lucy, who's not on the podcast today, and Hannah, we all read through your article, and it is emotional, and it goes through a discussion, or you mention kind of suicidal thoughts and yeah, sure. when we were discussing it we we didn't really quite immediately recognize the significance of what you'd written about there it was sort of breezed over and on reflection we spoke about it and we we're like that's actually really quite serious that you brought that up and you're openly discussing it and did we feel like we breezed over it because it's a taboo subject or, or was it something else and when you did have those thoughts, was it really difficult to accept you were having them? Did you have someone to speak to? Or was it very much like you're in a dark hole and it's a dark place to be, so you couldn't reach out to anyone? Um, no, I did. I, d- I did have people to reach out to. I, I mean, it was 3am and uh, I haven't seen my dad was on WhatsApp, so I had a bit of a chat with him, but he really didn't grasp the gravity of the situation. Yeah. Um, but I do have a very good doctor's practice that I'm in. And so I just, as I think I said in the article, I just made uh, an unwavering decision to go and see the doctor the next day. And so I had someone to talk to on that basis. And it would, then it was just a case of waiting it out at, from th- between 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. when the kind of going to the doctors comes around. So yes, yes and no. Um, it, it was scary in the instant. But I did feel that I had a doctor that I could go to that was good, and I knew that she was very good from previous experience. Um, but also, I did have friends that I could reach out to, uh, and so it was a time of day thing that I felt isolated. Um, but other than that, I felt like I did have a strong personal network to turn to. Yeah, it's really great that you were able to get that, see the doctor, you know, immediately the yeah. same day. Yeah. Um, Hannah Louise, on on this topic of we haven't really touched upon it yet on suicidal thoughts, do you have any experience on either experiences yourselves or or colleagues that maybe have gone through this and how they've addressed that? Because it can often, as I've just raised, it is a bit of a taboo subject and people find it really difficult to talk about because of the gravitas of that situation. Yeah, so I mean, it is the taboo subject it is the one that I, ha- I haven't had anyone come to me um which on one hand I'd like to say great no one's having them but on the other hand I think it's far more likely that they're just not sharing them um I've had line managers speak to me that comments have been made in passing and they asked if just what I'd do if that came about again um and it's a lot like John said it's knowing who your support network is knowing who you can turn to for help and also knowing that your gp will take this seriously um it's a fairly fundamental thing like we we can't ignore them um we all breezed over it in John's article and then all felt horrified for doing so um 
but there's a lot of good helplines out there. The Samaritans have a great helpline. That's 24-7. It's a crisis line. That's for whether you're experiencing it yourself or whether you're concerned for someone. It doesn't just have to be the person experiencing it because quite often, I'm sure, people who experience it don't necessarily feel like picking up the phone and speaking to someone, but you can phone and get kind of advice of where to take them or how to get help. Um, so it's a really difficult topic. I know we're planning on covering it in future um, and in a lot more depth and with some other professionals on with us to talk about this. But what John said is exactly that, kind of knowing who the support network is around the person, if that's yourself or someone else, that is a fundamental step because knowing who your support network is and knowing who you can reach out to is almost vital in a situation like that. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, and I think what I'd add into that is that I think there are potentially people out there that are very vulnerable and don't feel like they have the support network. And I can think back in times in my life where kind of socially I would I was comparatively isolated and I wouldn't have had that. And I th- what I would say in that situation is there are, the professionals are out there, so whether it's the helpline or whether it's your doctor. So there are, regardless, there are people that you can turn to. And once you do that, you will start to get the help that you need. And then it's through that that you can start to rebuild your kind of social networks and you kind of find your feet again. Yeah, that's really good advice, John. I mean, this is always a touchy topic for me, so bear with me. But I have been at that point where I've not wanted to be alive anymore. And it's a horrible place to be in. And it's one of those things where I feel like it wasn't something I necessarily appreciated how it felt at the time. And like you, you couldn't, you couldn't, you can't imagine what that feels like until you're there, basically. So I used to be very much like it's really selfish that people are doing this. But once I actually got into that space myself, I suddenly realised that in my head it was the like selfless thing to do. Like to me, it was that I could help everyone else. I'd be making everyone else's life better by just not being around and not being irritating. And I did get myself to a doctor's. And if you do go to a doctor's. They do check on you, so I have regular checkups. So initially it was every week, and now we're down to like once a quarter, just to make sure that I'm fine. So they regularly check in with me, regularly check my medications, all right, and things like that. But recently at work, we also had a discussion where someone knew someone at work who took their own life, um, and I think it's also really, really important to mention that if you do know someone or you see someone quite close to when that event may occur, there is a large chance that there wasn't a hell of a lot you could do about it because I know that there's quite a few people that I've met where they sit and they really worry and they're like what if I just said something different and what if I just you know done something different maybe they'd still be here but a lot of the time you're in such bad space that that decision was potentially already made like a lot of people that are in that space but they usually go and see everyone before they say goodbye kind of thing and um, as long as you're not making other people's life more difficult as long as you're trying to be open trying to you know and you're there for them if they want to have a chat like, I feel like that's the most you could do. Yeah, that's really good advice, Hannah, because if we take responsibility for what's happened and that creates our own guilt around the situation, which really makes our mental health worse, and we can try our best and reaching out to someone and offering help is as good as trying to be more interventionist. John, just going back to when you, you then saw your GP and you already had seemingly a really good kind of network in place through your GP and had a... I guess they understood your situation. What did they suggest you do as a form of treatment? Did they offer you something there and then that you accepted or did it take a while to agree what the best course of treatment might be? 
Yeah, no, um, they gave me medication straight away. Yeah. So uh, I got on with that really quickly. No, didn't have a problem doing that at all. Um, they prescribed uh, sertraline, which is the one that I'm still on, which is the long-term one. Uh, they also prescribed diazepam for the acute effects, but there was kind of there's not particularly pleasant experience, I don't think. Um, fortunately, I wasn't sufficiently bad that I and I managed to ride out the acute effects and just avoid taking the diazepam at all, uh, which I was kind of quite pleased about. Um, and then the sertraline, I compared for speaking to other people. I I'm on a, I'm on a pretty small dose, um, and I'm continuing with that. Um, but I am feeling pretty sorted these days, so looking to I've, well, I've reduced back down to the smallest dose that I was on in the first place, um, and potentially going to hopefully come off that fairly soon. But so it was it was the the medication which yeah I was more than happy to just get on and take, um, just because it is medication, nothing else to really kind of think about it in those terms. Uh, I think just to really kind of take the take the edge off what people think about the medication is it's just some pills like anything else. It comes in a bubble pack and you eat them on a regular basis until you're well again. Yeah. Um, and um, and then they recommended therapy. So they they recommended someone they knew, but she was too busy. So I just went online and found myself someone. Uh, and I've been having therapy for about two months now, uh, and that's going very well. It's interesting that you raise the stigma around medication because I think I don't know why but there is a stigma around taking medication and quite often when people are experienced for example depression they don't want to take medication and it's, it's almost like I'll, I'll do anything but take that why yeah. do you think why do you think that is I mean it, it seemingly does work you found it worked really well and it's almost like you're taking paracetamol if you've got a headache so taking something to help address something like depression, anxiety, breakdown, yeah. it clearly helps. It's clearly really beneficial. What can you say to people out there that might have a stigma around medication to help them realise that actually it is a really beneficial thing to embrace and not feel negative about? Personally, I would just say, just don't care. I really just don't care what yeah. other people think about it. Um, and my whole... Having had the experience of just the whole mental health illness um, and just being up, owning it and being upfront about it uh, from the off, uh, that was my personal choice and that made a difference. And the medication is just part of that. And I'm, I'm a very honest person and largely I'm a very open person. So I think I'm lucky to be in a position where I've got natural characteristic to not be seen as taboo sort of thing yeah um and i'm the sort of person that kind of goes against taboo subjects anyway because nothing should be taboo um and what i would say to people is that if you kind of hide it away it just causes more strain because you're hiding something and that's just not a naturally comfortable thing to do um and if you're open about it no one really cares um and everyone just takes it as it is so it's just i think we just need a much more we can, we can be a lot more confident uh, in our attitude towards it that it is just something to take and the people are pretty relaxed about that. So it was, it was almost defining to say that I'm taking this and this is what this, this feels like. Um, but it's rather than making it taboo and putting it in a box to hide, you actually are open about why you're taking it and what it's for and then put it on a box to then have in display. So it's still in a contained box that you can kind of, that you just kind of have to have with you, as in kind of metaphorically. 
Um, but it's an open and honest about having that carry that box around rather than constantly trying to hide that box. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think just I'm not quite sure that that metaphor is kind of entirely working. No, um, I, I really like the metaphor. I really like the positive attitude you have towards it's it's transparency. It's saying to people, yeah, yeah, I have an illness and I'm addressing it, and that's absolutely fine. And that's actually great for me that you're supporting me. You know about that because it's much more helpful to have the people around you know what you're going through so they can support you through it than to try and hide it away. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, just, just thinking through on the metaphor, it's like having a box with medication inside it with no labels on it and people asking you what's in the box and you kind of having to cover stories and being embarrassed to say what's in there Yeah. versus having a box with a big label on the outside that says mental health illness medication and people see it and go, oh, mentally ill, are you? Well, well, yeah, I've got mental illness, yeah. What was it? Oh, yada, 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 this, that, and the other. These are my pills for it. Yeah, I think if you can't embrace another person's, you know, struggles and support them through that, then, you know, why should you be in that person's kind of ecosystem of support yes. when you shouldn't? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Hannah, I know that you have some experience from taking medication. Did you find the same stigma when you first started and how did you deal with that? Yeah, so when I first got diagnosed, um, my parents were very much like, this isn't a thing. Like, you're not ill, there's nothing wrong, don't take any meds that they're giving you. And I went years without taking medication and when I finally took that decision because nothing else was working and I was getting progressively worse um and I took that decision to start taking them it changed my life um and like I've been I'm on the same one as actually on one sertraline I tried a couple of different ones so some of them really didn't agree with me and made me really ill and made me quite dizzy so that I found quite scary and then and because they were my first experiences with them, I was a bit like, oh, maybe everyone's right. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But um, for anyone that is ever considering it, um, give it time. Sometimes you just need to find the right one. Sertraline, uh, much like John, was the right one for me. I've been on it different doses. I come up, I come down. I've tried to come off them. It didn't work, so I went back on them. And I mean, for me, it's quite likely that I'll be on them for quite a long time. Um, but I'm on quite a low dose and I'm quite proud of myself for like working really hard again with like therapy and things to to be able to to cope on a lower dose and start looking after myself but you know still with the support of, of that medication and and yeah like the stigma um one of the things I was thinking about when you guys were discussing it just then and I was like it's almost like a, if you're taking medication you're admitting that it's really bad because if you think about any physical symptoms like headaches and things or like broken legs you don't get medication until the pain is really really bad do you like you'll sit there and you'll be like i've got a headache but i'm just gonna sit with it for a while and then once it's got to this unbelievable point of pain you're like okay i'm gonna take some paracetamol yeah and i feel like that's also part of why the stigma is it's like by having it people are like admitting that it's really bad but and they're forgetting to look into the other side where i'm like no this is how i get better this is you know that's the important side I think there's a certain historical element to it as well. Um, my dad revealed that when he phoned up and first spoke to me um, when he found out that I was ill. And he knew that I was on the medication. And he does have a sister who, um, she was ill um, back in the 50s and early 60s, I think it was. Uh, and they went as far as doing a lobotomy on her, which really didn't go well. For that. Wow. was not a good idea. And so she's been on significant medication for decades. Um, but it, notwithstanding that, I think historically the early mental health drugs had a much more dramatic effect on what the person was like. So you could be either very um, 
what's the um, race subdued? So um, what's the word? Can't quite think of it right now. But, but basically, very kind of um, subdued by the drugs. Or you can be very hyper. I think they can be cause people to be kind of overreactive to them. Um, and when my dad spoke, he knew that I was taking the medication, and he spoke to me for the first time, and I sounded like this. And he was like, oh, you don't sound very hyper. And I'm like, no, I'm not. that's not what they do. So I think there is a, a history there that they became taboo because people that took mental health medication actually became someone else because they were, they were too hyper or they were just kind of seriously subdued by the whole thing. And that was a kind of slightly socially embarrassing situation to be in. But I would say my experiences both positive and negative experiences. I've kind of had a great experience and I've, I've not felt it as quite as enjoyable when I've not been on the medication, but outwardly there isn't anything to judge me by, whereas I think previously there was, and that stigma carries on, and it was very evidenced by the fact that my dad thinking that that's what mental health drugs were still like, where in actual fact it's not, they're much more benign in terms of their character changes that they cause. Yeah. Once you find, once you find my mom. And also... In the context of taking medication, it, it's only one form of treatment. You're, you're also talking to a therapist who, at the same time, is, is trying to deal with it from a different angle. But both work together and they are mutually beneficial for your recovery. So it's all about the multi-pronged approach to your treatment rather than just, you know, it's not just one thing, it's a silver bullet. You've got to make sure that you address it from different angles so that you have the right support network in place. Yeah, no, for sure. My, my, I was quite sceptical about the treatment to start with, um, partly because I was just too revved up with work and I expected that you go into something, you kind of you define the scope of what it's going to be and then you go and sort of deliver against that scope. And it really is a, a, a consultancy mindset of doing exactly that. Yeah. Um, and I would go to these therapy sessions and they would be very meandering and I wouldn't really get any tools at the end of a session to go and do do anything with um, and I was starting getting once a day frustrated but there was a certain amount of when am I starting to get it get when am I going to start getting my value for money here because yeah. I wasn't getting anything but it is just the nature of the therapy and it does it takes time for your therapist to get to know you and she I suppose she was forcing me into kind of just having a much more relaxed and meandering approach to the whole thing because that's a bit more like what the human condition is like rather than here's a scope go and do it kind of create an output and sign it off and off you go to the next thing so I think I was all got to the point where I was treating my mindset like an Atkins or a commercial project and it's not it's a much more kind of um, malleable and meandering and creative thing that is needs to be a really interesting contrast actually I can definitely relate to that what you do every day in your work and the, the value you're trying to deliver within the workplace to your clients and that, trying to completely uh, deliver that in your own life and how you're addressing a problem. You think, I'm going to solve this problem exactly the way I solve a problem at work. And it just puts a mirror up against you to maybe how you don't need to deal with things in the same way in your personal life as you do in work. So it must have been quite eye-opening when you go through that process yourself and then you're talking to a therapist and you start getting the frustrations that you get to trying to apply that work mindset on your own progress in life 
So yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, it's very self-reflective and I can completely relate. And that's probably what a lot of people feel like when they're trying to solve what they think is, you know, a mental health problem. They're trying to solve it in a way that is probably quite logical. They've got to do X, Y, Z. They need some tools to get them to get them through the other side. But it's not quite like that. It, it's time. It's talking. It's support. You know, there are ups and downs. It's not going to just solve itself immediately. Um, it's about accepting that it is different to how you approach things in in at work. Yeah, to- totally. And I was just uh, had a friend around the other day and. Uh... She kind of turned up and she's like, oh, how's, how's it going? What are you doing? And for the very first time in a very long time, I was just like, I'm just chilling out. And it was just a nice. real kind of, it was a real surprise to find myself actually enjoying myself just chilling out. You know, it's really great to hear how positive your mindset is now. So there are a few other tips that you have um, used to help yourself recover. Can you just give a little overview of what these are? Like you mentioned meditation, reading. I think it's quite a few books that you'd also recommend. Yeah, sure. Um, your books have been a huge part, uh, definitely. And um, so a couple of years before I kind of had the mental illness of last year, I definitely was suffering from anxiety. Um, and it wasn't bad, So, but I was having minor hallucinations. It was all feeling a bit weird, but I was perfectly able to carry on. Um, so I read a book called uh, Anxiety Rebalanced by Carl Vernon, and he's a guy that has kind of had a big anxiety issue himself. And so that was very informative just in terms of tips, to really, really practical tips that you can do. It's like, so almost going back to the work thing of having objectives, but it's having objectives that you're going to do in your life. And it is like, that is things to do, but it's also objectives to just chill out on a Friday evening. My, my objective for a Friday evening is go out, sit in front of my log burner, read uh, National Geographic magazine, and that will be my evening. And that's, that's something that, that is an objective to go and set yourself, but it's more it's about relaxing and kind of rebalancing yourself, but also setting yourself around things to, um, or just things, activities that you can go and do. Yeah. Um, a really good one is, uh, wait for the long title, it's the book you wish your parents had read, brackets, and your tri- children will be glad that you did, kind of close brackets. Uh, it's by Philippa Perry, who is Grace and Perry's wife. Uh, she's a psychologist, I do believe, but it also is just really interesting in terms of how it explains what life is actually like and why you might have certain mindsets that you have and how you can go about tackling them. So, again, it's really weird. So it's very... Sometimes it's quite an intense book, but in other ways it's a really quite hopeful and very digestible book because it does have specific exercises in it. Um, and then the last one is and it's called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse. And it is it's a short story aimed at everything from 8-year-olds to 80-year-olds about just the relationship of these four individuals that have all got different characteristics and kind of how they deal with life. And it's just a fantastic read. And I don't mind saying that when I got it last week and I first read it, it did make me cry because it just it was just so emotionally reassuring. And it's, it almost takes you back to your childhood, but from an adult perspective. And all these things that you did as a child, they're still completely relevant as an adult. Um, and, and it just put a... Put a spin on the whole of life that you just go, no, that's, that, that is the human condition. Or it's, so essentially it just outlines all the human conditions in a really comforting context and makes 
you realise that there's so many different people out there with so many different characteristics and we can all fit together and kind of social groups do have all of these different sorts of individuals in them and you don't always have to be the dominant one in the social group. And I think there's just a really nice line that I think the model said to the boy that the fox doesn't say very much and said, no, he doesn't, but we just like having him with us. And that made, that made a real difference. Oh, that sounds like an absolutely great book. I might just have to go on Amazon right now and order that. <laughs> sounds and like the kind of book it, yes. you'd have with you yeah. your whole life and always, you know, you can carry around. I guess just finding the thing that works for you. So John's mentioned have a Friday night off that's your thing great for me it's exercise love it so I do that if I'm having a bad day can turn a bad day into the best day in just an hour um it's different and kind of whoever's listening there will be a thing for you and even if you're in a dark place there will be a thing um just try it try everything and something will work we know we've had Carlo on before who just likes walking doesn't have to cost any money um but yeah I'm also going to go and find these books because they sound great so that's a really good tip yeah. I think the, the exercise thing is a really good tip as well um, I, I, I exercise a lot as well not as anywhere near enough as I used to because it could have, yeah, just, especially in the last couple of months um, but yeah it definitely makes a huge difference and there is I oh, a friend of mine does she's a mental health uh, therapist uh, fortunately for me um, and she uh, she talks about how much health um, so exercise can help and there have been studies done comparing uh, people that are taking mental health medication and exercising at the same time and all the evidence suggests that the exercise enhances the effect of the mental health uh, medication yeah that is a completely true point and I mean I would advocate exercise to anyone because that's again that's sort of my release and it's something that I absolutely love doing makes me feel great um yeah so anyone out there even a little walk like 15 minutes just to be outside even when you're on your lunch break you can always find some sort of joy in going for a walk doing some exercise uh, being out with nature if possible i agree with all the above exercise <laughs> i find helpful eating well is another one i can tell if i've eaten a lot of bad foods in my mood and if i've drunk alcohol it definitely affects me but i think the main thing um that kind of sums it up is just you know you need to choose you and it's okay to choose you you need to make sure if that's like giving yourself some extra sleep and saying no to something, that's fine. If that's what you need to do to keep yourself well, just choose you. Yeah, I think so. Just talking about enjoying things, uh, some of the, I think some podcasts that I've um, listened to recently, um, in various different ways, but quite a few of them have made the point. You just need to remember to enjoy do, enjoy doing things again. And there was one example was a, a sports person. They were kind of very significant athlete, and they were training all the time. And they just weren't enjoying it anymore. And the, their uh, their coach just made the point that they need to start smiling. And not so. I think it's not so much start smiling, but just actually taking the mental time to remember that you do do these things because you enjoy them, and actually just let that kind of feeling of enjoyment be be mindful of enjoying something rather than just churning something out because kind of that's what your life is, sort of thing. Yeah, great piece of advice. So, well, John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and thank you for sharing thank you very your... much for giving the opportunity to share yeah sure. it, it's been really insightful and we'll we'll link um, your article on our podcast notes so everyone can give it a read but I think yeah, we've brilliant. learned we've learned a lot today and you know things that I've taken away particularly from what you've said is 
you know, realize when you reach that burnout point and reach out to your support network. There are some great support systems out there, whether that is your friends, your colleagues, your GP service. Um, embrace the treatment that comes with it. Don't be, there's literally no need to be ashamed of what you're going through and how you're dealing with it. It's the road to recovery. And as you just said, and I think it's an absolutely great point, remember to enjoy doing things again, because I think that's probably a key part of recovery, as you say, is make that objective to relax on a Friday night and read National Geographic magazine, because that in itself is an achievement if you have the time to yourself to do that. So thank you very much for joining us. Really hope to hear from you again soon. And this is the end of the episode. So please remember to rate, review and subscribe. And do drop us an email on constructingmindsets at gmail.com if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Thank you for listening.